2: This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris Perry. This week, the US Senate approved a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Now, I was having trouble envisioning $1.2 trillion, so I turned to an instructional video used to help school children understand big numbers. Let's review a couple of large numbers. A million has six zeros, a billion has nine zeros, and a trillion has 12 zeros. 12 zeros is a big number. And to understand just how big, the instructional guide calculates how long it would take to count those one trillion infrastructure dollars. And you get 31,709.9 years. That's a long time to be counting your money. Nearly 32,000 years of counting. (laughs) That's big. Okay, so we've established that this is a big bill. And what do American households, communities, and businesses stand to gain from this big spending? Topping the list includes repairing physical infrastructure like roads and bridges, replacing lead pipes, and upgrading electric wires and metal rails. There's big money allocated to expand cable and fiber optic wires into rural areas. There are grants for clean energy expansion and public transportation, but the grants aren't as big as progressive Democrats had initially hoped for. Amazon, FedEx, and UPS will be big winners because they will make big profits from the big dollars allocated to expand ports of entry. But Big Pharma is a big loser because these companies are actually going to owe the government for Medicare drug waste. It's a big bill with big winners and big losers But the reason the Senate infrastructure bill is such a big deal is not what's in it. It's because of how it passed the seemingly intractable Senate with meaningful bipartisan support. Whoa! The vote of 69-30 included all Senate Democrats and 19 Senate Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. At one point during the vote, the Senate chamber was
3: downright chummy. Take a listen to Chuck Schumer. If we all sit in our seats and try to stick to the 10 minutes or as close as we can get to it, we can finish 10 minutes. We can get this done quickly. If we all finish voting by five, he can bang the gavel and get us to do it quicker than 10. Okay. so let me, I ask unanimous. Thank you. That's the most Republican applause I've gotten in a little while, so I appreciate that. Okay.
2: Now the bill heads to the House, where Democratic leaders have clearly signaled their intention to support this bipartisan measure.
4: Uh, As you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi has made it very clear uh, that uh, we are all for uh, this scaled-down package because it is bipartisan. And we are supporting the president in trying uh, to establish uh, bipartisanship.
2: And bipartisanship is precisely what President Biden promised back in November 2020.
1: There will be no blue states and red states when we win, just the United States of America.
2: This week, it looks like President Biden just might be able to build a $1.2 trillion bridge across the aisle. So is it time to celebrate the end of partisan obstruction and return to the good old days of bipartisan cooperation? Uh, Not so fast. I just have to ask, is bipartisanship actually a good thing? Are bipartisan laws more effective or more fair? After all, some of the most bipartisan eras of the American Congress were troubling to say the least. Throughout the early 20th century, bipartisan cooperation by conservative Republicans and Southern Dixiecrats routinely blocked racial justice efforts, and the post 9/11 Patriot Act, which many have argued seriously endangered American civil liberties, was bipartisan to the point of being nearly unanimous. My big question is, what's the big deal about bipartisanship? And here to help unpack this big question is Ron Christie, Republican strategist, former special assistant to George W. Bush, and a longtime friend of the show. Welcome back to The Takeaway, Ron.
3: Melissa, it's always great to be back with you.
2: <laughs> Thanks. And also, Nicole Hemmer, a research associate with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia University. Welcome, Nicole. Great.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So, Nicole, I'm going to start with you. Is bipartisanship better? Like, Is it, is it a, an absolute good that we should always be pursuing in trying to make public policy?
1: So no, it's it's not an absolute good. You've already named some of the um, legislation or the wording of legislation that bipartisanship created during the 20th century. I would add to that um, the internment of Japanese Americans, which was a bipartisan effort. Um, the Defense of Marriage Act in the 1990s was bipartisan. So bipartisanship itself, we treat it like it's this positive value when really it's just a description of how legislation has passed Um, and there has been partisan legislation that has been good for the country. So I, I don't think that in and of itself bipartisanship is a good thing or something worth pursuing just to say that you've passed something bipartisan.
2: Ron, and yet it feels to me, right? So on the one hand, I, I, you know, I got to say, I agree with Nicole on this, that I worry about um, the tool itself being held up as the value. On the other hand, that is kind of how democracy works, right? That, that we, we value the process as much as we do the outcomes, Um, that we say it matters to have everybody's input. What's your thought on this?
3: Well, I'd say my thought here is is a simple one, and I I strongly believe in bipartisanship. If you go back to the early 1970s and you look at the Clean Air Act, for example, you have a Republican president working with a Democratic legislature. You look at George H.W. Bush uh, with the Clean Water Act, bipartisan support. And you look for the gentleman that I work for, President George W. Bush, and he insisted that his No uh, No Child Left Behind legislation would not go through the Congress unless he had the support of the key Democrats in the key committees. And so I think what we see today is partisanship and partisan wrangling. But when you look at the notion of both sides coming together to find the common good, I think that's what our governance is all about. And that's what it should be all about.
2: So that question of the common good, um, we're going to talk a little bit later in the show with some folks from Texas about This question, for example, of, you know, like protecting kids and everybody, right? I'm just going to go with this except for a few outliers. Everybody wants a better life for their kids. Everybody wants their kids to be healthy. And yet, Nicole, I just want to point out we have really different concepts of how we get there, right? One might say that, you know, open borders is a way to provide for children, right? Allowing immigrants to to make choices to make a better life for themselves and their families. And, and others, people of goodwill and good conscience could say, actually, you got to close the borders in order to protect children and in order to make life better, right, for our kids. So how do we take like an end goal um, and have like the real contestation to get there without just thinking, "Mm, we got to all be on the same page?
1: Well, not pursuing bipartisanship doesn't mean that you don't have debate. Um, Certainly, we have seen robust debates within, say, the Democratic Party over the Affordable Care Act. And even bipartisanship itself doesn't necessarily reflect what the common good is or what the public wants, right? If you're talking about making children safe and growing up healthy, you know, There are gun reform legislation um, proposals that have vast public support from Republicans as well as Democrats. And yet the only way they'll probably ever be passed is through partisan legislation. And so there's a disconnect, I think, between bipartisan public support and actually the meeting of minds of bipartisan legislation. So, you know, bipartisanship itself doesn't necessarily give us a way to tackle those questions, but it also doesn't foreclose things like robust debate or um, taking into account public opinion okay so
2: so I love this idea of maybe a slightly more complicated way of thinking about how this this you know policy sausage is being made so Ron here we are there's no doubt we're living in a time of um, greater partisanship not only on the part of those who are governing not only our legislators but also a greater sense of partisanship um, and 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 partisan division um, in the sort of you know, ordinary folks who are really taking their partisan identity as the key to their entire lens of the world. I'm wondering if you're a policymaker is there a way to actually get your preferred policy through by not being bipartisan? In other words, maybe you're a a Democrat who's kind of fiscally conservative. You'd actually prefer the Republican way. So you go ahead and let the Republicans take the fall for it. You get reelected, but it's actually your policy preference. Or is that just crazy town?
3: I wouldn't call it crazy town, Melissa. But what I would say is that It shouldn't be about wearing the red jersey or the blue jersey it should be public policy objectives and outcomes that benefit the constituents that that policymaker was elected to serve now i spent nearly nine years in capitol hill i spent four years in the white house and it's much harder to demonize someone that you like someone that you work with and oh they might just happen to be on the other side of the aisle i think the problem that we find ourselves in right now with partisanship is that if you don't know A member of the other party. If you don't interact with people, it's a lot easier to demonize them and to hold them out as straw man for an argument that you, of course, are putting forward from a partisan nature. And I just worry that we have become so polarized and so personal in our politics that it would be a really strong move for these elected officials to take a step back and say, it's not about me. It's not about my party. It's about our country that we should be focused on. Ron
2: Wood. Term limits help make that possible.
3: Yes. I, I think there are so many people who come to Washington with great intentions, Melissa, of advancing public policy objectives. But as we've all seen, you know, it can be intoxicating at, at best and it can be downright power hungry. Um at worst. And people don't like relinquishing power once they have it. And sometimes it's best to go back to the constituents who sent you to Washington, as opposed to being a creature of that environment.
2: Nicole, I'm wondering, as I'm thinking about term limits, about other structures that contribute to um, either more bipartisanship or or more division. Uh, And it seems to me one of the key structures that that we're contending with right now is the way that the Senate filibuster currently works. Um, I'm wondering if... If sort of historically that filibuster actually um, you know was meant to to cause bipartisanship but now seems to be creating divisiveness.
1: so, I'm not sure that the filibuster was ever meant to cause bipartisanship. I mean, it was a way to ensure that minority voices could hold the floor and could be heard. Um, but it didn't necessarily then lead to um, those voices being included in, in the legislation itself. Um, and as as you know, it had been used for pretty nefarious purposes, especially around things like civil rights. But the filibuster is a huge obstacle to passing legislation um what we have seen is that the filibuster has not necessarily generated a a flurry of bipartisan reforms in recent years it's just stopped any legislation from happening at all and that's a, a different outcome than getting to that bipartisan promised land
2: so ron talk to me um about one more sort of structural aspect here. You know, obviously, when we hear from senators, they have whole states, right, that they have to represent. And states are kind of inherently more likely to have at least some purple aspects to them. But one of the things we've really seen in the U.S. House has been redistricting in a way that creates safe partisan districts. And it feels to me like that does work against any kind of bipartisan goal.
3: I really think it does and you look at the average reelection rate for a member of the house of representatives you're talking over 90 percent and some of the lines in all of our favorite states across the united states you can see lines you know going hundreds of miles in one direction and then taking a sharp left or a right turn for another why to protect the incumbent and i think a lot of people around the country melissa are looking at this and they're saying This seems to be more of the incumbent protection program than it is having competitive districts and competitive races where newcomers perhaps could have their ideas heard. And so when I look at my home state of California and you have a system where the top two vote getters in the primary go on to the general election, there has to be a different way, a better way than just allowing the same folks, regardless of party affiliation, to come back to Washington year after year
2: so i love this point that that you know so now we've started to like kind of dig into the idea of like how do we get new voices in right maybe that's through term limits maybe that's through really changing um how we do districting for um for the the, the house and of course also beginning to address the ways that the filibuster works nicole there is an, another piece here and it's in part how all of these structures together have worked to generate ideological wings in the party right it was the kind of tea party wing um with republicans and now we're seeing a very progressive wing in the Democratic Party. Um, on the one hand, you want these ideologies to have a space to speak. On the other hand, you often hear from moderates in both parties that these more ideological wings have, you know, ripped apart the possibility of bipartisanship.
1: So I'm not sure that those partisan wings are necessarily to blame. I mean, we've had these different caucuses that um organized within the parties for quite a long time. But I think the ideological nature of them is part of the issue that the parties have sorted ideologically and certainly within the Republican Party that, um, you know, there was a a wing in the 1990s that was constantly challenging Newt Gingrich from the right. And then you had the Tea Party Caucus and now the Freedom Caucus that are are doing that, um, that have left little space for any kind of bipartisan bipartisan voting. Um, but I don't think that you can do away with those caucuses either. I mean, they are they are who those members of Congress are. And that itself, as well as how the parties operate, particularly how the Republican Party operates, um, is why you're seeing this sort of entrenched anti-bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that needs to be addressed as well as these these other structures, because it's not just the House, of course, um, that has uh, blocked legislation. It's happening in the Senate as well, where you do have um, people representing both Democrats and Republicans in these states.
2: Ron, I'm wondering if you see issue areas beyond, I mean, you know, the fact that this is happening on infrastructure, you know, is almost textbook, right? It's the one thing everyone is supposed to be able to agree on, build the roads, build the bridges. Are there any other issues where we can imagine, particularly between now and the midterms, some genuine bipartisan cooperation? Uh,
3: You know, I hate to say this, but no, I I really don't. Uh, I I look at Infrastructure is being one of those areas that all representatives want their constituents to have safer drinking water or better roads to go on and, and bridges to cross. But that really seems to be about it. When you look at healthcare, when you look at foreign policy, um, the parties are so divided and so partisan in their view of the world, both domestically and internationally. This might be our last best shot before we get into the trenches of the 2022 midterm election to get something done in a bipartisan fashion. So I hate to say it, I am not optimistic about the two sides coming together to do too much too soon.
2: Nicole, does a does a, a long view of American history give you any sense of optimism on this?
1: Well, only in the sort of like grand cyclical sense. I mean, there there is a um, chance that in 10, 20, 50 years that we will have uh, a different arrangement of our politics. But I think if we're taking um, the view of how politics has unfolded in the last, say, 30 years, I mean, we have been on a trajectory away from um, sort of passing and paying for legislation. Um, and that I think is going to continue for the foreseeable future because there are so many incentives that support the system as we have it now. Once those incentives change, then we can talk about a different kind of politics. But as long as incentives um, have a pushed, particularly the Republican Party, away from um, any sort of of compromise or legislating with the Democratic Party, I think that we'll see moments like this more as an aberration than as the way of doing business in the Congress.
2: Give me an example of one of these incentives.
1: Um, So on the right, there are incentives like um, the conservative media um, that push and punish um, legislators who work with the other side. So somebody like Mitt Romney, who had been you know, the Republican nominee for president in 2012, has been pilloried in conservative um, media outlets um, for working with Democrats. And so as long as there's that sort of um, cost to bipartisan legislation, there's going to be a wariness of engaging in it.
2: Ron, are there incentives that, that you see as, as key to shifting how this works?
3: I do. I think elections have consequences. And I think this is what you see when you have one party in control of the entire Congress. The 2022 election cycle, it's very likely the Democrats will lose their majority in the House and could lose it in the Senate. That will bring the parties closer together. That will have them in a position where they actually have to negotiate on priorities rather than poking each other in the eye and slinging barbs and insults we'll actually have to sit down. So the midterm election could provide us an opportunity to move forward in a nonpartisan application of policy where both sides try to compromise and get what they're looking for from a policy perspective.
2: Ron Christie and Nicole Hemmer, thank you both for joining us. And please come back and join us again.
3: Count on it. Good to be with you both.
2: I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and you're back with The Takeaway. We just took a big look at bipartisanship in U.S. politics, and now we're going to go to a state where bipartisanship is even less evident than in the U.S. Congress. Last month, dozens of Democratic state legislators in Texas left the Lone Star state in a high-profile move to deny quorum to the state's Republican lawmakers, making it impossible for them to pass a voting bill that restricts access to the ballot for many Texans. The state lawmakers waited out the special session called by Texas Governor Greg Abbott, but Abbott simply called another special session immediately after the first one expired. And he has promised to continue to do so. And then this week, the situation escalated when the Speaker of the Texas House, Dave Phelan, signed arrest warrants for the 52 House Democrats who refused to return for the special session.
5: The Sergeant of Arms and any officers appointed by him are directed to send for all absentees whose attendance is not excused for the purpose of securing and maintaining their attendance under warrant of arrest if necessary.
2: <laughs> Yo! Now on top of that, Democratic State Senator Carol Alvarado filibustered the GOP voting bill for 15 hours Wednesday night, all the way through Thursday morning. I gaze at the portrait, a true Texas giant. Our president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, I'm reminded of his words on the day in 1965 when he signed the Voting Rights Act and when he said, the vote is the most powerful instrument ever devised by man for breaking down injustice and destroying the terrible walls which imprison men because they are different from other men. But ultimately, the bill passed along party lines in the state Senate. Once again, placing the pressure back on Texas House members. With me now to help make sense of all this is James Badugan, who is the politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. Welcome to the show, James.
5: Hey, Melissa. It's good to be here.
2: What finally led to this moment of issuing arrest warrants?
5: Well, they've they've been away for quite some time at this point, um, about a month. And these special sessions are about 30 days long. So they had effectively run it out, as you said earlier, last Friday. But then Governor Abbott called one right away. And many of the House Democrats who were still in Washington, you know, had said publicly that they were going to stay put, that they saw no need to return to the state, because if they did, then that would allow for the passage of the voting legislation. And they did not want that to happen. So they had said very publicly that they saw no need to come back. And the arrest warrants is something that the House had been contemplating even since the first special session and when when they first broke away. So this time around, the Democrats had planned all these legal maneuvers to try to say, hey, I'm protected from from being arrested. But the, our state officials have taken those to the Texas Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has said those orders are actually not valid right now. And so that's pretty much what we have, a, a manhunt really for these lawmakers.
2: So you're saying that They're not valid?
5: Right. So there were lower court decisions, state district court decisions um, that said, hey, we as uh, state courts will offer protection from being arrested uh, because we don't think that there's any criminal law that has been broken. And there's no real justification for arresting these lawmakers. Essentially, what they've done is broken a house rule, a Texas house rule. There's no actual criminal law that's, that's happened here. There's no criminal act. So for someone to apprehend or arrest a lawmaker, especially if you try to put bodily force on them, there's no real justification. That's what the lower courts have said. Those lower courts are run by Democratic judges. We have elected judges here in Texas. But as you go up the rung in the state judiciary, you have more Republican justices. And that's exactly what Republican state officials have done. They've appealed those uh, court decisions to the higher courts, which are run by Republicans. And not to be cynical of the state judiciary, but they've made those decisions along what you would think are the political lines.
2: So, James, how is it that you know, members of the public in Texas are feeling right now with this level of standoff between um, you know, these two parties and, and, the, and the state um, you know, courts involved as well? I think
5: it's been a difficult month for Texans. On top of all of the increases in COVID cases that we have and worries about kids coming back to school, we have to worry about, you know, lawmakers getting arrested, about lawmakers not coming back for a special session. Um, As far as how the political tea leaves are shaping up, I don't think that this is changing a whole lot of minds. I think everybody has run to basically their political camp. If you're a Democrat, you're applauding these Democratic lawmakers um, who are saying they are fighting for voting rights by not coming back to the legislature. And if you're a Republican, you're obviously unhappy with them. You're saying they're not doing their job and that they ought to come back and you know, stop wasting taxpayer money. I think one of the things that's interesting is that that conversation about, you know, wasting taxpayer money, because this is a special session. These last two special sessions are special sessions that didn't need to be called, you know, the way that the way that the Texas legislature is set up. We come in once every two years for about five months and we get all our business done. We pass a two year budget and that's it. And that's how the rules are. But the governor can always call a special session for whatever he wants, and he's called these special sessions, particularly for the selection bill. There's a couple of other bills, including a bail reform bill. But the Democrats were very clear from the beginning, and they the quorum break is a, a legal um, uh, maneuver, procedural maneuver under the legislative rules. And so here we are. So I think a lot of Texans, beyond Democrat or Republican, and going to the political camp, are just kind of tired of. Mm-hmm. Uh, this stalemate.
2: You know, and it feels to me like that political exhaustion must also be sitting on top of some anxieties around the other big fight going on in Texas right now about local mask mandates, particularly um, in schools. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how that's playing out politically.
5: Governor Abbott has taken a really clear stance that he thinks the time for mask mandates is over. And in his words, he said it's a time for personal responsibility. That goes along with what Governor Abbott has sort of had as his MO all along. He's banned local officials from imposing mask mandates or other safety guidelines that could help prevent the pandemic. Um, and has said that it's up to a person's personal responsibility, whether they uh, want to wear a mask, whether, whether they wanna you know, uh, even even get the vaccine. And he's been very vocal about it. That's been his MO throughout the pandemic. I think what's changed here is the Delta variant and the um, high level of how contagious it is. With kids returning back to school, uh, I think that presents a challenge for the governor now. He's stayed strong. He said there will be no mask mandates in school or in any public government place or a public institution. Um, And he's sued a lot of the big cities and big counties, which are run by Democrats that have tried to impose these. But I think the one thing that there's a risk of here politically for him is that, you know, as as school returns, kids are going to be in these highly populated places. We've seen the Delta variant is much more contagious than earlier strands. And when you put kids in big crowds with not just other children, but also adults Uh, who are going about their daily lives, I think you run the risk of contagion kids. And as we all know, once you have kids, it's a whole different ballgame because it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or liberal or conservative. You can be completely apolitical, but what you want is what's best for your children. And if someone's going to hurt your children or put policies in place that might hurt your children, I think they might have something to say at the ballot box.
2: James Barugan is a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. Thanks so much for joining us, James. Thank you. Let's take a look at the U.S. economy.
1: Economic growth is the fastest in 40 years. Jobs are up. The unemployment rate is the lowest since the pandemic hit.
2: Now, that was President Joe Biden talking about the July jobs report released from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics last week. And according to the report, the U.S. economy added 943,000 jobs in July, the second straight month of steady upward growth. That means there was a 0.5 percent drop in the unemployment rate to 5.4 percent.
1: Now, while our economy is far from complete, and while we have doubtlessly will have ups and downs along the way as we continue to battle the Delta surge of COVID, what is indisputable now is this. The Biden plan is working, the Biden
2: plan produces results, and the Biden plan is moving the country forward. I always love it when my president talks about himself in the third person, the Biden plan. For more on the current economic outlook, we're joined by Robin Farzad, who is host of Public Radio's... Full disclosure. Robin, thanks for being here.
4: Thank
3: you.
2: And Amara Amokwe, who is economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Hi,
4: Amara. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me.
2: Now, Amara, what was your initial impression of the most recent jobs report? Did anything surprise you in it?
4: Well, it was a really strong number, and economists said it was a strong number also. As you mentioned, the economy adding 943,000 jobs, the unemployment rate coming down, and all of this was encouraging, particularly because earlier this spring, we had some disappointing months in terms of jobs added to the economy, and that started to make people wonder whether the recovery in the labor market was going to be a little slower than anticipated. So it is sort of encouraging to see the economy add more than 900,000 jobs for two straight months. But that being said, the data for the jobs report were collected before the end of July and sort of into August. And that is when we really started to see local governments start to bring back some of these mask mandates and other restrictions aimed at curbing, you know, this surge in coronavirus cases we're seeing. And so I think right now it's an open question what the Delta variant and this rise in cases is going to do and how it's going to potentially impact the recovery going forward.
2: So, Robin, were you surprised by sort of the magnitude of growth and the drop in unemployment here, or was this also pretty much what you expected?
0: It's what we've been hearing from small businesses, large businesses. There's been difficulty hiring. I think, Melissa, we're in this kind of this feeling of weightlessness and strange days and that the Dow is approaching 36,000 markets, what I think have nearly doubled since their lows back in, in March of 2020. You, you can't afford a house anywhere. They get snapped up before they're even listed. Everywhere there's help wanted ads. And you have the Federal Reserve not only at 0% interest rates, perhaps until 2023, but buying about $120 billion in bonds every month, like pumping Hawaiian punch into this economy. And at the same time, they're saying, well, we we can tolerate a certain level of inflation. Unemployment has plummeted. It's still not back to pre-pandemic levels. But this is risky business. I mean, you're starting to hear a handful of economists talking about a taper. And you also hear taper in in pharmaceutical terms where the doctor's trying to pull back your medicine. And it's not easy to do. You're going to have maybe some convulsions and some withdrawal syndromes. And especially with this Delta variant uh, shutting down whole swaths of the economy regionally, everybody thought it was going to be quickly back to work in the fall, back to normal. And it's hardly that.
2: So uh, Robin, what is it that's risky here? What's dangerous?
0: Having all of this stimulus in the economy, and uh, again, you know, the Fed's balance sheet is just enormous. It's at a record size. How would this economy be doing without the extraordinary aid of the Federal Reserve and extraordinary amounts of fiscal stimulus? You see what the Senate Democrats and the House are close to passing, you know, extraordinary unemployment benefits that I think for the rest of the people who take them are set to lapse in September. What is the economy's true staying power without all of this kind of supportive scaffolding and stimulus? But I thought we were also going to be approaching some manner of post-pandemic normalcy, of which we're not there yet to even test this.
2: Yeah, Amara, so it's so interesting to, to hear that analysis by Robin there that that it may be in part that we're being floated, you know, by the stimulus, which is, of course, what it's meant to do, right? But it is odd to me because I see these job report numbers, but then I, you know, like I, I was just sort of on a vacation and talking to ordinary people working regular jobs, and they're not telling me, oh yeah, like I'm chilling, it's all good, I'm paying these bills, I got the extra cash. In fact, people are telling me they're still struggling,
4: Yeah. I mean, I think that this economic recovery, it is important to remember that the headline numbers look good, but it is still a very uneven recovery. And a lot of industries were really hard hit by this downturn that we saw because of the pandemic. And they're just starting to sort of reopen and rebuild. And now we have the threat of the Delta variant that is popping up. And so there is a lot of unevenness, even in restaurants and hospitality, the sectors that are really adding jobs right now, there are still people who are saying, look, 2020 was so bad that it's going to take me quite some time to really recover and really to get back to where I was pre-pandemic. And then you have restaurants now and and other businesses in the the hospitality industry saying, now we have the Delta variant. We're not sure if people are still going to come out, if we're going to be able to sustain this sort of early stage recovery that we're going through. We've also seen wages accelerate. But of course, if prices are going up, those wage increases that American workers are seeing, they may not necessarily feel better off. So it is sort of an uneven state of affairs right now. And I think that that is why the Federal Reserve is watching inflation really closely as one of the metrics it's looking at to determine whether it's time to sort of start to roll back some of these policies it put in place to support the economy during the pandemic.
2: Robin, as we begin to dig into the Delta variant issue here, there isn't any real possibility, right, from a kind of political perspective, that governors and mayors are going to do the kind of complete shutdown, again, that, that we saw back in spring of 2020. I mean, we do actually have vaccines. People are simply being reluctant to take them or not having access. But there isn't any possibility of us being where we were in April of 2020, is there, economically, I mean.
0: I mean, if certain cities and states truly are brought to their knees, I mean, they have to cry uncle, you're talking about ICUs filling up, it could force these governors on the right, it could force their hands. I mean, I think that it's it's broadly metaphorical that the Federal Reserve, if you compare the two, it fights inflation in the economy and prices kind of spiraling out of control. What you're seeing right now, truly metaphorically, is inflation of this Delta variant. Mm -hmm. And the Federal Reserve, the way it shuts down the economy to kind of kill inflation, I don't think you can kind of do this drip, drip, selectively, masks, masks, asterisk, vaccine passes, fake IDs, everything. I think it's kind of binary. I think you got to shut down entire hotspots in order to kind of curb this virus to a level where it's not expanding kind of in the geometric way that it's doing right now. And I think that's an even less savory prospect for governors and lawmakers right now who don't even want to force people to get vaccines.
2: I want to talk a little bit about race and gender in this economic recovery. We know that this first wave pre-Delta variant hit women particularly hard, um, but it looks like we've seen some you know, gains around jobs for women. Will all of that get wiped out if schools get closed um, uh, with the Delta variant?
4: It is a potential downside risk right, for women. We know that women were very hit, hard hit, by daycare closures and school closures. It just really impacted their ability to participate in the labor force. And when you talk to economists, one of the things that they are expecting to do drive job creation for women come the fall and into the winter is schools being reopened. And so any sort of speed bump in schools reopening or children being able to attend schools in person could be a problem for women. We did see women create, uh, we did see two-thirds of the jobs that were created in July go to women. So that was encouraging, but we still saw that their participation in the labor force was really kind of stagnant. It didn't it didn't go up. And so that would suggest that women still aren't coming off the sidelines and re-entering the workforce. Um, So it is something that I think um, could potentially sort of limit the job gains for women going forward if we see the Delta variant continuing to to surge.
2: So Amara, help me think about this politically for a second. Um, If if I'm a governor, a lawmaker, um, and I'm looking at um, sort of this landscape and what Robin just, you know, provided for us before the break around this real possibility of having to shut it all down, is it, is it more distressing to shut it down and have the economic pain that everyone is going to feel, or to allow these almost unconscionable illnesses and deaths, and maybe particularly among pediatric cases, but that's still going to be pain that is felt by some and not by everyone? I'm just like, how does one make that particular political calculation if we, if we took ethics or morality out of it altogether?
4: Mm -hmm. Well, I I don't cover politics, but just talking to small business owners and workers, I think some of it, is geographic, right? I think that, you know, one thing to think about lockdowns is that in the states where we have sort of relatively lower rates of vaccination, those are the states where we have governors that have been hesitant to do sort of very strict restrictions and very strict lockdowns in in the first place, right? It's just not sort of part of their political calculus when they're thinking about who their voters are and, and what their voters want. And so I don't see a world where unless there is some some sort of significant worsening of the situation that we're seeing now where states, particularly in the South, will go back to sort of the lockdowns and the situation we had earlier in the pandemic. That may be a different calculation for uh, states and and governors in those states where people do sort of uh, aren't as hostile to lockdowns and masks and those sorts of things. You know, I was talking to, uh, to uh, restaurant co-owners in, in Columbus, Ohio, and they were saying, look, this is a place where people take COVID very seriously. They want safety measures. They want to feel safe. And so if the Delta variant continues to to surge the way it is, we're going to see people uh, sort of change their behavior. And we probably will see restrictions here because that's what people kind of want.
2: Robin, obviously, President Biden will not be himself on any ballot um, coming uh, into the midterms in 2022, but he is touting these economic gains as the Biden plan working. Um, If the Biden plan ceases working mostly because of the Delta variant and and this kind of need to potentially shut down... um, even if it is Republican, you know, governors and and lawmakers being forced to shut down places they had not previously, might it still be bad for Democrats?
0: Uh, It could be. I think if you take the case study of Florida where Ron DeSantis has kind of become, uh, you know, synonymous, the lightning rod for this nationally as a governor who is going to stand up to a national mandate. And he's in in reality governing two states. If you look at North and Central Florida and the Panhandle, and if you look at South Florida, which is chock full of, you know, all of these uh, uh, real estate refugees from New York and DC and these people that were quarantining in the sun and the fun. And there's a tremendous amount of confusion and anger by parents and people who thought they were going to Florida where you could eat at restaurants mm-hmm. and things were okay. And you expect some modicum of, of, uh, of rules and curation for clubs and beaches and vaccination cards and everything, and they're getting none of that. Um, He is on the ballot next year, and there are people who can make the case against him pungently as as kind of a national torchbearer for kind of this, um, you know, I'm thumbing my nose at big government, D.C. telling me to wear a mask, D.C. telling me to vaccinate my kids. Uh, I think that that's going to be the true case study next year. It's not so much Biden, uh, Biden and his press secretary and everybody have kind of unanimously spoken about the importance for vaccines. And in fact, we think it's so important that we're exporting millions and millions and millions of vaccines to developing nations. And we have our own states, you know, what, 150 years after the Civil War ended telling us to to, to go away. So um, yeah, I would watch Florida very carefully. I would watch the situation in Mississippi, in Arkansas, where um, you, you kind of wonder if governors wish they could kind of speak logic to this, but it's politically impossible, even as ICUs are filling up.
2: Mm. Uh, Robin, there's another aspect to the kind of economics and who can tell you, you know, what to do. And some of that is, is around, you know, Washington, DC, or your governor, but the other is your boss. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm a college professor in my in my real day job, I've, you know, haven't taught inside a classroom in a year. But the rule is now we all got to go back to campus to teach. And you know, Delta variant has me nervous about that. I'm wondering about the financial situations of those who are going to say, you know what, I, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going back in, right? For people who are who have been able to work remotely, what are we likely to see happen to our sort of overall economic um, indicators around that?
0: I think you are seeing clout right now. If you just take the $15 prevailing wage at the service sector level, there are people who are saying, look, you took advantage of me, you exploited me. I was dealing with people as a frontline, you know, grocery store worker, restaurant server before this. I ain't coming back. Um, you know, for $10 or $12. You're going to give me $16, $17, and this is going to kind of be sustainable. And uh, we're going to limit the size of the dining room. You're not only seeing that at service level employees, you're seeing it happen in Silicon Valley with Google, with Facebook, with a bunch of white collar companies pushing back reluctantly kind of the comeback to the office thing. So for the time being, the clout has shifted to the workers, and that should unite them in terms of worker rights and work from home. And a lot of us worked our tails off last year in the throes of the pandemic, and we were just as productive, if not more, on the Zoom. Uh, but you're seeing this being battled on a, on a company-to-company level. And I think that that's fascinating, both from a wages perspective and also from a, a you know defining what work should be going forward.
2: Absolutely, and I and I think we will continue to watch um, those questions and and how that might also sort of divide across these different aspects um, of work and of the work sectors. Robin Farzad is the host of Public Radio's Full Disclosure, and Amara Amokwe, the economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank
0: you, Thank you Melissa. Melissa.
2: That's all we have for y'all today. We always appreciate you tuning in for our politics show. Now, before I head out, let me give a quick shout out to our fantastic team that helps me make the radio. And this week, Team Takeaway did an especially heavy lift, bringing you the show while also making room for me to spend some extra hours enjoying sun and sand with my family each day as we bid farewell to summer vacation. Our producers are Ethan Oberman, Meg Dalton, Shanta Covington, and Katarina Barton. Our line producer is Jackie Martin. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Our board operators were Milton Ruiz and Sham Sundra. Jay Cowett and Vince Fairchild were our directors and sound designers this week. And David Gable is our executive assistant. Lee Hill is our executive producer. And a big welcome to our brand new digital editor, Zachary Bynum. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is the Takeaway.